Hello, I'm Kristen Meyershand, and this is the Apiango Line, a podcast about the unique heritage and distinctive culture of the Upper Madawaska and Apiango River Valleys. Today, we'll be diving deep into that heritage and culture with Sean Conway, the host of The Local, as he chats with two old friends, Julie Fisher-Ryle, who grew up living and working at one of our area's premier resorts in the 20th century, Chippewa Lodge. They are also joined by Julie Maloney, a lifelong friend of Julie Fisher, a friendship forged at Chippewa Lodge in the 1950s when her father, Dr. Patrick Maloney, used to pack up the entire family in Ottawa and spend two glorious weeks at Chippewa Lodge every summer. It goes without saying that the two Julies have lots to talk about, but before we get to them, we'd just like to tell you a few things about them both. Julie Fisher-Ryle's parents took up ownership of Chippewa Lodge just after the end of the Second World War and operated it until the 1970s. Julie Maloney, meanwhile, is part of those famous Maloneys of Eganville. Her uncle was Arthur Maloney, the first ombudsman in Ontario, and her father was a much-loved pediatrician. But when Julie was only 17, she was also crowned Miss Canada. Much has been written about her at that time, especially after she was seen tripping the light fantastic with such a notable dancing partner as Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau himself. Meanwhile, as all that was going on in Ottawa, back in Barry's Bay, Julie Fisher and Sean Conway were classmates, both attending MVDHS and working on a student newspaper curiously entitled The Big Ear. So let's join Sean as he chats with the two Julies as they overlook Kaminiskeg Lake, as they reminisce about Chippewa Lodge during those heady days back in the 1950s through to the early 1970s. Well, I'm delighted uh, here on this beautiful summer morning by the shores of Lake Kaminiskeg to have two very good and dear friends from many years, uh, Julie Fisher-Ryle and Julie Maloney, who together are today going to remember Chippewa Lodge and the world it represented, and in many ways a world of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s that are, from as far as I can tell, passing, if not already passed, from the scene. I want to welcome Julie Fisher-Ryle and Julie Maloney, and I'm delighted to see you both, particularly at the upper end of uh, Lake Kamenskeg, because Julie Fisher-Ryle, Chippewa Lodge, was at the bottom end of Lake Kamenskeg. Yes, well, good morning, Sean, Julie. Um, I am Julie Fisher-Ryle, and I spent my defining years growing up at Chippewa Lodge. I was born in 1951 in Ottawa and then moved immediately to Barry's Bay, where I spent the next 23 years living and working with my parents, Lynn and Olive, at the lodge. And um, during the course of the conversation, we'll probably talk about what kind of a different experience going to resort was in those days to what it is now. And Julie Maloney, what's your connection uh, with, uh, with Chippewa Lodge? Because people listening to this, particularly with an Ottawa Valley uh, connection, are going to, th- first question they're going to think, if not ask, is, is she related to those famous Maloney's uh, from uh, Eganville? And of course, the answer is yes. She is the daughter of the legendary Ottawa pediatrician, Dr. Pat Maloney and his lovely wife, Eleanor, and of course, the granddaughter of uh, the very famous country doctor, 
Dr. Martin J. Maloney, who for many years was a distinguished member of parliament for South Renfrew. So, Julie Maloney, what's your connection to Julie Fisher-Ryle now uh, and Chippewa Lodge? I think that we can honestly say that Julie Fisher-Ryle is my oldest friend, although now that we're getting up there in years, we like to say long-standing friend. Uh, my dad was uh, a doctor in World War II, and after the war, I think he and my mother were looking for some kind of place to go and relax in the summer, and my father always said he was absolutely useless as a handyman, and he did not want a cottage, he worked seven days a week, and he did not want to spend any free time he had repairing a cottage, so they were looking around for a resort I'm not sure how they first heard about Chippewa, but I know they did start to come here um, probably late 1940s, before I was born, and they brought me up for the first time when I was about a year old, and that's when I first met Julie Fisher-Ryle, so we are long, long-term friends. So Julie Fisher, you mentioned your parents, whom I remember well, uh, Lan and Olive Fisher, they were not to the um, tourist industry born, as I recall. No. What, what brought your parents to uh, the Combermere area and uh, what we know as Chippewa Lodge? Well, my dad originally, the, his family emigrated from England in 1911 when my dad was three, and he grew up in Toronto. And as a young man, he worked on the Toronto Stock Exchange until it crashed and he lost his job. So then with a borrowed capital of $1,000, he bought a convenience store in the beaches, which he ran for... X number of years until the Toronto Transit System, in its wisdom, decided to extend the subway line as far north as Eglinton. By that time, my grandmother had passed away. He was living with my grandfather. He looked at my grandfather and said, this city is getting too big. We're out of here. So they started touring around Muskoka first and then this area, looking for a place to buy. My dad decided that he wanted to go into the hospitality industry. And so they found Chippewa was up for sale. Uh, in 1946, it was listed. My father purchased it in 1947. And uh, he and my grandfather moved up here and batched it quite happily until 1950 when my mother came up with a girlfriend and stayed for the weekend. And that's when my dad met my mom. And the rest was history. So they married and mom moved up there. So for our listening audience, who are maybe not familiar with the geography of the Madawaska Valley, just cite uh, Chippewa Lodge geographically and tell us a little bit about what your parents actually bought and where the name Chippewa Lodge came from. Well, geographically, it's, we always used to say it's between Cumbermere and Barry's Bay off the main highway. That was the directions we gave. Big signage, so no worries there. Uh, that would be for our listening audience not familiar even with that ge yeah. description. Yeah. We're talking about a, 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 a spot that would be about two hours uh, west northwest of Ottawa and about three hours That's and correct. a half northeast, northeast of, of Toronto. Toronto. Right. And by that time, they had opened up the highway, joining Cumbermere and Various Bay, which opened up. They did that in the late 30s, I believe. That opened up the... Um, the stretch and the tourism industry really took off after that. The number of resorts in the area were all of a sudden became very popular. Um, when my dad bought the property originally, it was 225 acres, a lot of it bush. But he had something called a Victoria land grant, which meant that not only did he own the property, he owned the property under the water to a certain degree. So our beach was considered completely private. And the only time people were allowed to 
encroach, as it were, if they weren't customers, was if there was a storm or something. And then they had what they called the right of foreshore, and they were allowed to, to come in and, you know, shelter from the storm. But that's what they bought, and uh, my father, for many years, made a little bit of extra cash selling lumber off the property. So it was it was a win-win situation. My mother refused to live here during the winter until my father built her a house just off Highway 62. And then they, they were permanent residents. But up to that point, they went somewhere else for the winter because she refused to live in the bush. Now, you just mentioned in passing the beach. Those of us who remember going down Lake Kamenisky from the bustling metropolis that is Bar- that was, was Barry's Bay in the nineteen late 50s, early 60s, uh, our first impression of Chippewa Lodge was one of the most spectacular sand beaches Gorgeous. anywhere in creation. Describe physically for our listening audience the physical landscape uh, of Chippewa Lodge as you first remember it as a child. I just remember it being really long, walking from one end to the other. Now, my father always advertised it as a mile-long sand beach. Not quite, okay? Dad, Dad was a great storyteller, so things got a little bit bigger as the stories uh, unfolded. But it was beautiful. It was kind of curved. And this, it was, the lake was shallow, so you could walk out a long way from the beach before you, you know, would drown. And you, you'd come back in, and the, and the sand was always clean, and it was always warm, and we didn't get a lot of stuff washed up on it. So, yeah, it was, it was gorgeous. I mean, it was a great place to grow up. And, and the buildings... And the buildings that you recall initially as a child, uh, what what was there when you first have a consciousness of of the place? If you're looking at it from the beach up, the first thing you would notice would be the main building, the main lodge. And the cottages were kind of in a horseshoe shape that way around the the main building. There were 10 on one side and 10 on the other. And you you had access to the beach from all, all angles of it. And then, of course, behind it, we had things like, as Julie mentioned in her pictures, the ice house, the laundry house, our cottage. Uh, We had a snack bar, you know, stuff like that. So, Julie Maloney, um, you're uh, a child. You're uh, coming from the big city, the national capital, Ottawa, uh, though your father uh, would certainly have had very vivid memories of growing up in Eganville, Ontario. So the landscape around Combermere would be very familiar to him. Um, so what's your first memory as a child of the, this lodge far away that your parents took, took you to on hot summer days and weeks? One of my first memories is of the little porches on the cabins. The porches were made of logs and we could actually straddle the log and pretend it was a horse. And, uh, we would put a little blanket or something like that as a saddle could climb up and play horsey and that's one of my very earliest memories of coming to the lodge and the things that were so much fun. We loved the beach. We couldn't wait to get down there. The car had hardly stopped before we were out and rushing down to the beach just because it was such a heavenly place and so unusual to see that quarter mile or so of sand beach. We just loved it. So those are the things that I remember. As a young child did you think your parents were taking you to some place in the outermost periphery of Canada. This seemed like a a long way away from uh, urban Ottawa, which would have been your winter home. In the old days, there was just a two-lane road, and you had to go through each little town. So you went right through the middle of town, and it always took a long time, and it was always hot, and we always wanted to get going. And it took about four hours or more in those days to get up here from Ottawa. The roads were not as good as they are now. 
we always had to stop in Eganville at the Maloney family home because my aged Aunt Mary was living there. We always had to stop and have a visit. And dear Aunt Mary was quite deaf, so we spent a lot of time visiting her and yelling because she couldn't hear us. And we were just so desperate to get going. And uh, we often arrived just at supper time. And we still wanted to run down to that beach and have a quick swim. So those are my earliest fun memories of coming to the lodge. And Julie Maloney, you're growing up, as I say, in, in Ottawa, where there are uh, a lot of French-speaking folks. And uh, you're now coming to this lodge uh, that was uh, quite popular with, uh, with Americans, uh, which is one of my vivid memories of uh, Chippewa Lodge and its American plan. I'm going to ask Julie Fisher-Ryle about that in a moment, but tell us a little bit of uh, your memory of, of encountering some of the other people, uh, early memories of perhaps even young Americans that you would have met uh, on the beach at Chippewa Lodge. My father always chose the same three weeks to go. The last two weeks of July and the first week of August, he maintained those were the best weeks in terms of weather for this area of Canada in the summertime. So we always reserved those three weeks. And so we usually saw the same families year after year, and many of them came from the United States. And one of my earliest memories was trying to imitate the way they spoke. And uh, so, for example, some of the kids would say, oh, look at the stones. And so I started to talk like that. And I remember one day my mother took me aside and she said, why are you talking like that? Well, yeah, I'm talking like that because and she would say to me, it's all right, Julie, you don't have to imitate your American friends. <laughs> that was one of the things I noticed. The other thing I noticed was a, a number of the American children, the boys would be so-and-so, 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 the third or somebody somebody the fourth and we don't do that so much up in Canada but they really did it a lot in the states and it always used to make us chuckle so those were some of the earlier memories that I had about so them. Julie Fisher Ryle what were your your what was your English born father doing with this apparently aggressive campaign to lure Americans from the upper Midwest particularly and what was the American plan that I remember being offered to these people okay well, I'll address the American plan first. American plan is simply that you get accommodation and meals. It can be two meals a day, three meals a day, whatever. But that, that was, it was a set menu. If you really didn't like something on the menu, he'd give you cold cuts. But you got three meals a day. Um, that was the American plan. The American people, a lot of them, I believe, came from the original builders and owners of Chippewa, when it was called Thompson Lodge, the people came from, um, they called it Oil City, Pennsylvania. And they, uh, many of them, you probably know some of the people that still have cottages on the lake. They, they look like mansions. And they were, so I think that was what started the influx. Once the area opened up, they would come. And then word of mouth, my father rarely advertised. The only advertising he ever did was once a year, he would go to Toronto to the sportsman show. And then he stopped doing that because he wasn't getting any business and he didn't need it anyway. So we'd have these wonderful families, and Julie will remember this family, this old dowager and her husband, Mrs. Tracy. I'll never forget her. She and her husband came with their four children. Then they came with their four children and their children's children. And then they came with their four children, their children's children, and their children's children's children. So she was Gigi, great-grandmother, and he was Pop, and she paid for the whole shot. She paid for every one of her family to come if they wanted to, to Chippewa for a vacation for a week. So they came for God. As long as you were there, they were there. They were still coming after my dad sold the lodge. They used to fly them into 
I think Peterborough, because they had all kinds of money, and they'd fly them into Peterborough, and then they would hire a car and driver to bring them to Chippewa. So that, that's the kind of guest that we had. It was repeat business over and over and over. And a lot from Columbus, Ohio, a lot from Detroit. Uh, we had them as far away as the Kansas City. Where else? Did, and Pennsylvania. Those were like the big draw. And we did have Canadian customers, to wit the Maloney's, but not that many, not compared to the Americans that we had that stayed with us repeatedly. And was the fact that they kept coming back and back and bringing their friends from places like Oil City and, yeah. and Detroit and Kansas City just obviously a, a tribute to your parents and the experience that they provided them at Chippewa? Well, I think Julie hit the nail on the head when she said her parents were looking for somewhere to just be. The resort today, the resort experience today is nothing like the resort experience in the 50s and 60s. You came, you sat on the beach, um, maybe you went fishing if you had that desire, if you liked to fish, but that was pretty much it. You didn't do anything else. That was, that was your vacation. And you let people wait on you, and you had your cottage cleaned, and you had your meals served, and that was what people were looking for. And just as an aside to Julie's story, she said she doesn't know how they heard about Chippewa. Thanks to Julie's father, I'm sitting here talking to you today. Because when I was six months old, I contracted spinal meningitis. And in those days, there were no antibiotics, there were uh, sulfa drugs, were all experimental, and I was going to die. End of story. And uh, my dad called up Dr. Maloney and said, can you help us? And he said, yes, I can. And he marched me into the hospital. I believe it was the general, because that's where he had his privileges, right? I was shoved into an oxygen tent, and he proceeded to use experimental sulfa drugs and stuff, and he saved my life. And he said, I, I did not wind up with any physical problems. And my dad never got over that. So when the Maloney's came, he, they were to be treated like royalty. They well, were. there are thousands of people all across eastern Ontario and western Quebec who have those memories of, uh, of Julie Maloney's legendary uh, father, pediatric yeah. uh, father. Julie Maloney, um, just comment again a bit further if you can on the kind of activities that you remember, for example, your father and mother, uh, very busy people, um, engaging when they got to Chippewa Lodge. My mom had four children, so very, very busy life back in Ottawa. What she loved about the lodge, one of the many things was there were three meals a day. She had absolutely nothing to do but get us up out of bed for the eight o'clock bell to go for breakfast, see that we got our lunch and our dinner. She really enjoyed that. Um, my dad loved to fish. That was really his only hobby, and there's such great fishing around here. So he was really happy to take the boat out and go off and fish early in the morning or fish around supper time, come back with all kinds of wonderful fish. So those were some of the things they did. Otherwise, as Julie said, they just relaxed. I, I have visions of them both sitting down at the beach with a book. My mom always wore a great big hat because, God forbid, she should become suntanned. She'd sit under a big tree and watch us and, uh, and just enjoy relaxing and being there and the activities for the kids there was a ping pong table in uh, one part of the lodge uh, there were lots of games to play uh, we brought things from home but there was always something to do even on a rainy day 
And one of the things we enjoyed the most was coming into Barry's Bay on a rainy day. We always got to go to Stedman's. We always got a little bit of money to buy Pez. I don't know if you remember the Pez candy, but it came with a little applicator and you'd put the candy in and uh, we just loved that. So that was always a big thrill. And at nighttime, we loved to go to the Bay Theatre. The Bay Theatre had double seats and we always got a big kick out of being able to sit side by side. And sometimes the movies were not all that appropriate for children, but we went anyway. And that was always a lot of fun. We looked forward to that. You both... uh have told me um, in other circumstances about some fishing experiences that you either participated in or observed. Uh, so it seems to me a perfect opportunity since at the time we're now discussing in the 50s and early 60s, much more so than today, uh, fishing was a big deal and uh, the lakes of this area were much more um, um, attractive to to fishermen like your father, Julie Maloney. Have you got a good fishing story, either one of you, as as then young girls, uh, for whom fishing would have been, at the time, I say as a young boy of that era, kind of, I don't remember too many young women in boats uh, when I was growing up around here. Have you got a good fishing story, Julie Maloney? And, and Julie, I do. My dad, I, who loved to fish, would arrange every year to take unfortunately, the men and boys only from the lodge, anyone who wanted to go, and they would go to Booth Lake in Algonquin Park, and he would arrange everything, and they'd go spend the day. Unfortunately, I was never invited, so the consolation prize was he would take me out in one of Mr. Fisher's boats, and we'd just fish for large or smallmouth bass or whatever we could find. But at least I got to spend quality time with my dad, just me and my dad and he always had an old sad looking dairy milk bar in his fishing tackle which I was allowed to eat (laughs) and those are the things I remember most but uh, those trips to Algonquin Park were very very popular and I was so sorry that I never got to be included in that. And did you ever catch a fish? Oh yes I caught quite a few fish never learned how to clean them properly but uh, my dad was very helpful and showing me how to get the fish off the hook and all that kind of thing, how to cast properly. And I still have some of his fishing equipment, including his old uh, bait box. Julie Fisher-Ryle, a good fishing story? Well, I didn't obviously get to go fishing with my dad during the high season because dad was the chef at the lodge and he was busy all the time. But Julie's dad would also organize while they were there uh, what they'd call a shore picnic. And my dad had these ancient old, I don't, they were like army lockers. And they were all kitted out with tin plates and cups and forks and whatnot. And they'd all jump in the boats and they'd go up Kamenisk Lake and they'd fish, 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 and they'd come home with like boatloads of fish. And my father would look at them, not cleaning all of those guys. You want to eat those? Clean them yourself. So Julie's mother would organize a fish cleaning party. God bless her. And we had three big pillars. They used to hold a water tower, but they were just these cement blocks. And she'd lay everything out on the cement blocks and then she'd get a bottle of gin. And she'd get everybody that wanted a drink, would come out and gut a fish. And there they were. They were all there out there, and they were having a great time. 10 o'clock in the morning, they were all snockered, cleaning these fish. That was, I remember that so clearly. And Julie's mother would clean one fish, and then she would command. She was very smart. But I, I remember looking at her, and always groomed to the nines, right? She's gotten fish, and looked beautiful. But she had them all out there, men and women, cleaning these stupid fish that they and my dad would say fine that thank you very much Eleanor that worked very well (laughs) but that's my fishing story Julie Fisher-Ryle you've talked we've talked about uh one of the great characters uh 
of your experience, not of mine, and the person, well, I'll let you describe this um, indigenous person and his black dog in the boat and the arrival at the beach at Chippewa Lodge. Tell us who he was and what he was up to. Well, come to find out that you have already done a, a program about Moise, I never knew his last name, so he, to me he was always just Moise, and I don't remember the dog's name, but he had that dog, I swear, for 15, 20 years. It was a black lab, and it would sit at the front of the boat, and the boat had a prow like a canoe, but the back end was like a, a proper rowboat, and he would have the motor, had the motor on it, and he would go up, come up out of the Madawaska, and go across in front of the lodge, and he usually would stop and talk to me if I was out there, or my dad if he was out there, and always tell us where they were running. They're running here, they're running there. And years later, when I went to boarding school at St. Mary's, every night... St. Mary's in Combermere. In Combermere, right. Uh, I would, one of the nuns would disappear during the winter at dinner time carrying a plate of food, and I always wondered where she went. Uh, and it turned out that Moise was living on the property, that they kind of took care of him in the winter months, when he wasn't guiding or, you know, couldn't live rough. So, and then when he died, he was temporarily buried in the convent mausoleum, but for a very short period, and then he was relocated to a different cemetery. But he was a fixture in my life. He would come at least once a week in the off-season. He'd come up the lake. Didn't see him too much in the summer, didn't like all those people. But the rest of the time, I would see him coming up and down the lake, out of the Madawaska, up to, I guess he came to Barry's Bay to get supplies. I don't, I never knew. And then back down the lake later on in the day, you'd see him come back. And for the audience listening, we're talking about Moïse uh, Francois. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he has been a subject of other um, programs in this series. But as far as you can tell, when he made that weekly um, trip, he was just out on a day's fish on Kamenskeg? Or I was never... he guiding? Or He did do guiding, uh, never for us, but... He did do some guiding, but I just remember him, all I remember him is going up the lake in the morning, you know, going up through the lake in the morning and back down into the river in the afternoon. Like that would, I never knew what he did, he never said, but he would tell us what was running. Was it smallmouth? Was it largemouth? He would tell us, he'd usually tell me some kind of a story if there was a bird or something, he'd tell me the story about the bird. And I mean, it never occurred to me that he was an indigenous person, he was just Moise and his dog. And his dog, you paint, I mean, the image you paint is of this majestic indigenous person in the back of the boat, yeah. and equally, well... Well, he wasn't he, very majestic. He pretty he looked pretty rough, but he was... Uh, but it, as a child, you don't notice that. Right, but you a dog, a very impressive dog. The dog's dog. sitting right in the poker straight in the front of the boat, like a, like a figurehead on a ship. And I, uh, after the dog died, I didn't see too much of him. I, I think he was just heartbroken when, that, when he lost that dog. Did you, a young... Um, person, child of entrepreneurs, uh, ever think after your chat with Moise that you now had some very valuable information that the market uh, of fishermen and women in the Never. lodge would want to hear? Never occurred to me. I just always enjoyed seeing him and he always let me play with his dog, which was very nice. Um, the dog was kind of standoffish, but you know he, he would allow himself to be patted and and whatnot, but no, it was a really, you know, it was just, it was just something that happened. In the same way that one of the postcards my dad sold was of a very large moose, just off the beach in Kamenskeg Lake. And every spring, when I was little, for about five or six years, we would hear this awful ruckus coming from behind the lodge in the bush, this bellowing, and it was, it was rut season for moose. 
And this thing, my dad would grab me and my mother and get us out of the way. This was in the off season. Pull us into the building. And this huge moose would come down the path from the laundry house, across the lawn, down the hill, into the water, bellowing all the way. And that would be it. And then we wouldn't see him again until next spring. Would his love interest uh, appear? She must have been around somewhere. We never saw her. But I'm telling you, my dad was terrified of that moose. I think if a grizzly bear had walked in, he wouldn't have been as frightened. But that thing, it was determined, and you could hear him for miles, <laughs> even in the water, bellowing away. So, Well, you know, men went in search of love. They, yeah. they do strange things. <laughs> well, this was very, this was, it was scary. He was enormous. Was it your, your impression or your dad's impression that for years it was the same moose? Yes, because this moose, I think, had been injured in the hip and there was a bald patch on one hip on his right hind leg. It was like someone had just sort of, sort of shaved off a bunch or tried to brand him or something. And it was always there. And every year the, the beard got a little scruffier. You know, it, it was just, but he was, the postcard we have, he's swimming in the lake and his head is, and the, the rack is, of antlers is huge. You can see in this postcard. I wish I'd kept a copy because he disappeared after about five or six years. I guess he went to the great moose pasture in the sky, but... Julie Maloney, uh, Julie Fisher Riley has just reminded us of, of really memorable characters and incidents. Uh, have you got any of those from your time, not just as a person there with your parents, but later as a parent yourself, taking your children to uh, to Chippewa years after the time we're talking about now? Uh, any vivid memories of particularly? rich characters, uh, any of the wait staff, any of the cooks, any of the cleaning staff, or just any of the other guests that, uh, when you look back on it, now seem to be the stuff of a good novel. We always enjoyed the waiters that Mr. Fisher hired, and sometimes some of the waiters would come back year after year after year, and it was like greeting an old friend again. But uh, he had quite an interesting cast of characters. It was usually men doing the waiting in the early days, and uh, they were always lots of fun and used to families and noise and all that sort of thing. So we enjoyed them. Uh, we were lucky enough to have a cleaning crew come to the cabin every day and bring fresh towels, sweep out the floors. My mother loved that. She didn't have to do anything. And we became friends with a lot of those. Those were usually young women, and they were full of beans, lots of fun, usually from around the area. And so we learned a little bit about what it was like to grow up, say, in Quaidville and how to pronounce Quaidville and that sort of thing. Uh, so those are characters that stand out in my mind. And um, one of the most important things that ever happened to me at Chippewa Lodge was that was my first kiss. I was 14 years old, and uh, one of the uh, staff walked me back to my cabin one evening and uh, kissed me. It had never happened before, and I promptly burst into tears. So that's something I'll never forget. Julie Fisher, the novel is taking shape here. <laughs> um, what uh, just something Julie Maloney has just said is really quite interesting to me that the, that your father had male waitstaff in the dining room. Uh, when he first moved to the lodge, he struck up a relationship with a business teacher from Renfrew Collegiate. Her name was Miss Gail Hanford, and every year Miss Gail Hanford would get him the crew. There were two waiters one boy in the kitchen, two cabin boys, two bolt boys, and a dog's body. So, Excuse me, a dog's yeah, body? Yeah, a jack-of-all-trades. Right. He would fill in wherever he was needed. So, oh, and a, laundry, sorry, a laundry boy. There were nine of them. 
And they would come up, she would arrange to get them on the train, and he would pick them up in Barry's Bay. And they, for until about, I guess, till I was about 13 or 14, and getting to the age where I really could do the job, he had them coming from Renfrew. And then Miss Hanford retired in the last couple of years, he didn't get great people. And so he, he let that go, and he went to Bancroft. And he got uh, some kids, boys from Bancroft. And then I got to be the age where I could wait on tables and you know, do things around the lodge. So he switched over to girls, except for one boy who would look after the motors and the boats and gassing up all the boats and, you know, that kind of thing, cutting the grass. So that's, so we went to all girls at that point in, uh, in the career. And that was when I started doing stuff other than running the tuck shop, uh, taking the linen around in a wheelbarrow to the various cottages. Now I had to wait on tables. So by the age of 16, I was hiring and firing the staff, doing all the reservations, all the bookkeeping for my father, um, and waiting on tables to boot. And everybody got a day off except me. Well, it's funny that, that we should be talking about this because 52 years or thereabouts since you and I were both in high school, the, the later years at Madawaska High School in Barry's Bay, specifically 1969-70, uh, my just my memory of you was that uh, you always seemed to be on call, even not in season, for something to do with the lodge. Uh, mm. Just give us a as polite a, a recapitulate, well, a, 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 as polite a, a review of what it was like being an only child uh, in a family that operated this very busy, uh, very popular resort. Uh, because my memory was that. Uh, you were on call a lot of the time. Most of the time, yes. Um, once the business closed down, my mother was... Which would be when? Uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Okay. And it would open? May 24th. So you, that was the open window. My mother was a clean freak. So at the end of the season, every piece of linen, every towel, every sheet, every blanket had to be laundered, put in the main building, on tables, you know, in case of moth or, God forbid, whatever other creature she could think of. They all had to be put in there. Uh, all the pillows, which were feather pillows, had to be dumped. Feathers in the sun to bleach. Back in the pillow, stitch up the pillows. Every every fall we had to do that, which was fine. And then we sort of got a bit of a break for a month or two till Dad started his annual, what he called advertising. He would write a letter to all of his customers inquiring whether they would like to come back and when they would like to come, and he would send, you know, the new prices if there were any or any changes that were being made. He typed every one of them individually on an old portable typewriter. There was nothing Xeroxed or anything. It was always done. Get the new brochure ready, That not that we needed them, but he would do one of those every year. And then about mid-February, because he did business with Canada Packers and various other wholesalers for the, the food for the business, he would get a call from the meat salesman. We've got chickens for nine cents a pound. Right, would say my father. Take 300 pounds of whole chickens. And they would be delivered to the lodge, at which point there was no running water, it was all shut off for the winter, and I would have to go down and cut up these chickens with my father, with meat cleavers freezing to death, your hands frozen. You didn't have to worry about salmonella, your hands were so cold, no living germ would survive on them. And we'd have to go down there, and I would have to spend a whole Saturday and a whole Sunday chopping up chickens with my father. That was the kind of thing that was expected. And I'm sure for my friends who were in the business, they had the same kind of life. They just happened to have siblings. I was the only one, so I got to do it all. 
But that was a, that was something I remember every year, and I used to dread it. I think, oh, how it, many people would uh, be at the lodge uh, in high season um, at one time? Uh, last two weeks in July, first week, first two weeks in August, as Julie said, they were the high point, and we'd have anywhere counting children and grandparents between seventy-five and ninety max. That was the maximum that we would uh, cater to. The rest of the the rest of the season, May, June, it, we maybe have four or five cottages occupied. September, October, same thing. They they'd be the dyed and the wool fishermen. We got the odd convention of uh, rockhounds that used to come because they liked the mines around Bancroft, and they would stay. We would have them. We'd get the odd convention like that, but not many in the off season. Most of it was July and August, and starting in July, first week of July, you'd have maybe 50 people. End of August, maybe 50 people. But it was the middle four weeks that that's where the big crowd was, and that's uh, it was the most popular period. One of the memories I have of Chippewa Lodge as a teenager growing up in Barry's Bay in the 60s is knowing you, of course, but through some things you said or inferred and just general impressions, is that Chippewa was kind of a place apart, a bit of a bubble world where uh, well-to-do Americans and important people from Ottawa came to summer by the beautiful waters of, uh, of Lake Kamenisque and a sense that it really was exactly that, a bubble world, that you left your troubles at home in Ottawa or in Canton, Ohio or in Brighton, Michigan, and you were just going to have a very nice, relaxing, family-centered holiday. Is that is that a fair description of uh, of it from your point of view, Julie Fisher-Ryle, and your remembrance, uh, Julie Maloney? I'm not sure I'd use the term bubble world. It's just that when we were open, it was my world. There was nothing else. I used to look forward to Julie coming because then I would get to go to Barry's Bay to the Stedman store and buy Pez. And I used to get to go to the movies because her mom would make sure that I was included. But other than that, it was that that's where I lived and breathed for two solid months. And outside of that, even when I was in high school, I came home on weekends when they needed me to help. Was it your impression, though, that a lot of your guests would come and stay put? Yeah, that that's exactly what they did. That they just didn't feel the need to go running off as Pat Maloney did to take his friends and sometimes his daughter to Booth Lake for a fishing experience in Algonquin Park or to spend a fair bit of time enjoying the nightlife in Barry's Bay or Maynooth or Combermere. Is that, is that a fair representation of a lot of the people? Julie Fisher, and then I want to ask Julie Maloney the same yeah, question. Um, yeah, I would say that's a fair representation. We had Muskoka chairs in front of all the cottages and they, there always seemed to be people sitting in them, having a late coffee, having a pre-dinner drink. You know, they, they, they just they came to relax and sit, and they didn't usually even worry about taking their kids to the beach because there was always somebody to watch them. Julie yeah. Maloney? I think I'm looking at it from a completely different point of view because Julie did have to work hard, and we did live in that bubble. It was pure relaxation. We really didn't have to do anything except decide what to wear in the morning, really, and what fun we were going to have that day. But I saw how hard Julie worked from the time that she was quite young, and she's said from time to time that she felt like the family drudge, and she really was. She worked really hard, and her mother was quite a taskmaster. 
And I remember Julie had to run the snack bar, and we'd be down swimming, and she'd say, oh, I have to go open the snack bar. And we'd all go, oh, but it's only 3 o'clock. I know, but I have to open the snack bar. And she was really expected to work very hard, whereas we were just allowed to goof off. And I did feel a little bit guilty about that. But uh, But you, Julie Maloney, were... um a lively, bright, attractive young teenager from Ottawa, and the place is crawling with young, rich Americans. Uh, there must have been times when going to lunch or going to dinner was more than just a matter of uh, eating a very fine summer menu at a lovely lodge. Was there? Did you ever feel a sense of social pressure that Harvey Schmucker the uh, Third is in from uh, Kansas City, and uh, I just better be at my you know, my social best as I go to dine in the, the lodge where he and I may be uh, interested in at least exchanging eye contact. Uh, no, the answer to that is no. For some reason, uh, junior, the third or fourth, they were either much younger than we were and we were not at all interested because they were just annoying or they were older or stopped coming because at a certain age we'd all get summer jobs and that sort of thing. So, no, I have to be quite honest. I never felt that kind of pressure to uh, make an appearance or anything like that. And with the uh, the young men that worked at the lodge, we were just friends. So I don't remember any particular romantic entanglements except that first kiss, which was quite lovely. But, but there's a hand in that answer just given that perhaps you saw a little bit of the ugly American. They kind of were a little bit better because we certainly are richer than these Canadians no matter how well intentioned or is that just a wrong reading on my part? No I never got that impression actually from the people there but one thing I did notice and I'd like Julie to speak to this as well was that uh, from time to time as we became a little bit more aware socially and politically that there were some very hardline thinkers uh, at that uh, at that lodge and uh, we didn't always agree with their views uh, so uh, I think that was a bit of an eye-opener for us, and uh, maybe, Julie, you could uh, talk about this. Well, we've talked about this before, Julie and I. My first acquaintance with racism was due, in, in fact, to many of the customers we had at the Lodge. We're talking the 60s, where the civil rights movement in the States was all over the news, and you saw it, and you had the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., and these people didn't seem to bat an eye. They never, uh, I mean, my father never catered to black people because they would have all got nothing left. And the base of our business would have been gone. And I remember feeling horrible about that in around 1968, 1969, when everything was blowing up. And we had one family that brought their nanny who was black. And they, my father was informed she is to either eat with the staff or send it to the cabin. She's not to eat with us. And I was horrified, and my father, God bless him, said, no, she can come in half an hour early, and she will eat in the dining room. She is a guest at this lodge. And so she would come in, and I remember her crying and thanking my dad and saying, you know, she felt like a human being for the first time in her life. So that was that was the eye-opener for me, was the fact that people really didn't like people of other colors. And... Uh, Enough said about that, I guess, but it was, for, for both of us, I think, was an eye-opener. You're listening to Sean Conway as he chats with the two Julies, Julie Fisher-Ryle, whose parents owned and operated Chippewa Lodge from the 1940s to the 1970s, and Julie Maloney, 
who would spend two glorious weeks every summer as a guest at Chippewa Lodge during those heady days back in the 1950s and 1960s. We'll be right back with more of their fascinating conversation after this short intermission. <laughs> 